The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Let's pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Thank you that you, before time began, purposed that you would send your Son, that we could have salvation, find satisfaction, and have a sovereign in whom we can hope. One who is great enough that no power on earth can overcome him. So that when we need a helper, we find one present and able. Thank you that you have orchestrated a word that discloses to us your character, your will, your actions in space and time. Thank you for orchestrating a story that did not stop at the fall, but made a way where there was no other way, ultimately through your Son, that we might see, that we might savor the beauties of Jesus, who is working for us moment by moment. Thank you that your word progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ. I pray that we would celebrate the unity of the word today as we consider biblical theology. For the glory of Jesus and for our joy, I ask, through Christ, amen. We are on chapter 10. Biblical theology. Underneath meaning, what does the passage mean? So what we're considering today is how a particular passage that we're wrestling with connects to the Bible, Bible's overall storyline and message and how that passage ultimately points to Christ. So we're going to look at some presuppositions that ground biblical theology. We're going to consider the nature of biblical theology, and then summarize the message of Scripture with respect to the Bible's form, frame, form, focus, and fulcrum. So some presuppositions that I hold to as I enter in to biblical theology. And what I want to do is I want to put two different concepts up on the screen and then consider biblical theology in light of these pairs. I have four of them. Number one, event versus text. God acts in history, but when it comes to biblical theology, our focus is not on the events themselves, but on the word that interprets those events. So the question here is, is the locus of special revelation a historical event in space and time or a written account. I call this biblical theology, this discipline, biblical theology, because our goal is to understand the text. That's what God gives us. So biblical theology is a textual discipline that's then informed by the historical context within which this scripture developed. 
multiple authors over 1,500 years, all offering perspective, yet their words are all inspired by God, guided by God, one ultimate author who's brought unity to the whole. And it's that unity, as captured in a book, that is the object of our inquest, uh, inquiry with respect to biblical theology. Criticism versus canon. Now, in biblical studies, criticism is the process of evaluation. But there are many who use this language of criticism in a very destructive way. So, two common approaches, critical and deconstructive versus submissive and constructive. So, if you ever took a Bible class at or a religion class that talked about the Bible, um, in a non-Christian school, you likely sat under a deconstructive, critical approach. For example, when they engage the Pentateuch, if they want to talk about the message of the first five books of the Bible, they begin by deconstructing the various sources that shape the Pentateuch, and then treat each one independently. They're often called J-E-D-P, for the Yahwistic, J, Yahwistic source, the Eloistic source, E, the Deuteronomistic source, and then the priestly materials. And they separate all of those, even though we have no documentation that ever supports those distinct sources, they separate them all, they view them as having contradictions one to another, coming from completely different spheres, and then they wrestle with these parts for which we have no biblical evidence. Deconstructive biblical theology. Or others will, because they, they treat this book like every other human book, without recognizing its distinct divine quality, because of that, they are without any hesitation and without the extra work of considering how different parts that seem to stand in tension with one another, one another might relate. Instead, they're very content to just see this um, much more like a wall of fabric bolts, each one with its own color, its own texture, its own history, rather than understanding that this is much more like a great quilt. With each square, that is each book, yes, having its own story, its own texture, its own author, and yet all of them masterfully crafted all into a single overarching unity that is God's Word. I think the approach the biblical authors had, and the approach that I've tried to model these 13 years, and that is organic to who we are at Bethlehem, is not a critical, that is, I am higher than this book, and I'm able to dive in and, and assess which parts I think matter for me, 
create a, an authoritative canon within the canon that I prize and the rest I throw out. No, we approach this book, we are underneath this book, and it controls us. Yes, we wrestle with it in detail, but as we approach this book and put it under a microscope of great care and great questioning, what should happen is that we find ourselves under the microscope of the Word, and it begins to analyze us because we are to be in submission to this book. It is God's very Word, and it's supposed to shape us. It's supposed to construct us more into the very image of the living God. So the object of biblical theology with respect to scope is the final form of this book. All of it, 66 books, breathed out by the living God, the Holy Spirit, as we heard in the sermon this morning, the Holy Spirit working through human agents. So not a hypothetical reconstruction, but rather the final form of this canonical, that is, authoritative word. And it's authoritative not because a church decided it to be so, but because a group of people recognized it to be so. That is, as coming from the very mouth of God. The makeup that shapes the object of biblical theology is unity from one divine author speaking through a diversity of human authors through a canonical structure of Old Testament and New Testament. Yet, a unified voice. Yes, progression, integration, climax in the person of Jesus, but all of it flowing out of the counsel of God. This is the object. It's not criticism. It's canon. Descriptive versus prescriptive. Do we approach the Bible like all other literature, or does the nature of the book, as God's living word, demand a special interpretive approach for a unique purpose? Now this is a little tricky, isn't it? Because this is a human book. That is, actual human authors, in specific times, under certain situations... Even knowing certain languages gave us this book. And yet, our conviction, as witnessed to in the text itself, is that one divine author was orchestrating all of it. So, Scripture does bear similarity to other books. That is, it was written with words, made up of syllables, that together form clauses and sentences and texts. And very comparable tools that we use to engage Shakespeare or Homer's Iliad or by which we read the Chronicles of Narnia, those same tools, that same brain is operative as we engage this book. And so we enter in with with care. This is God's Word spoken through human words in history. It's conditioned by language, culture, situations of the time, and therefore we open up the Bible and we do use normal forms of inquiry. And that's why I have a book called 
12 steps from exegesis to theology, and I'm guiding the kind of questions that we want to ask, and many of them are the kinds of questions we want to be asking when it comes to any literature. Yet, yet, there is more. Scripture is not just human words. So I cite here 2 Timothy 2.7 where Paul says, Tim, think over what I have said to you. I wrote it in a book. I've given you two of them. Two letters. Think. Think. Use your brain. We do not simply step back and say, God will give it to me. Pastor Jason doesn't prepare sermons that way. As if that stands against the rigorous form of study. No, he translates the text. He tracks its logic. He shapes an outline. He wrestles with application. He's using his mind, and all the while the conviction is, think over for God will make clear to you all that I've studied. The the gift of clarity according to Paul, doesn't just come out of the blue. It doesn't simply come through prayer. It comes through mental wrestling, yet God-dependent mental wrestling, over the book. But now, Scripture's uniqueness. As God's Word, Scripture is unlike any other book on the planet. There is no book like this book. And because of that, there are certain demands that are placed on our reading. Indeed, we will not arrive where God, the author, intends us to arrive if we do not approach it as he intended. It is not enough to just have a great brain when it comes to this book. You have to have the right kind of heart. Because this book, the intent of this book, is not mere information. It's an encounter with the living God that's going to to change us from the inside out. That's going to work in us something that is beautiful, that puts Him on display. And it's going to move us to have a relationship with this living God. And that takes the work of the Spirit. There are parts of this book that the best brains in the universe do not get. Because they don't have a personal relationship with the living God through Jesus. Consider. John? Just, I, I believe what you're telling us, and I believe that about the Word, but I've got to ask a question. If, uh, if, uh, if a teacher of uh, Islam were to set out the same principle, constructive and submissive, would they come up with, I mean, what would happen if you were to teach that way rather than from a biblical perspective? How do we, there we go back to that, I don't know, it just confuses me. So with respect to the Quran, if they had the Quran open. And I'm I'm not saying, I'm going that way, but I'm saying, Mm -hmm. with that method, could they not have the same sense of, you know, God's purposes and, and authority and... Well, certainly they would have the same sense. The question is, have they arrived at what is true? So there are many people who think they've got it right. And our goal here, um, technically it would be called epistemological humility. The quest for knowing, how do we maintain a proper humility with respect to knowing? It's not in saying, I can't know anything. That's not good humility. No, proper humility is to say that truth is not mine. 
but rather it has been disclosed in this book and the Spirit has entered in and captured me. So that it's not that I'm holding something up in such a way that I would say I'm better than you, but rather that if what is in this book is right, then the declarations that are given in any other book cannot stand because they do not focus on the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus over all things. If Jesus is mere man, merely a prophet as he is in Islam, and not the very son of the living God, fully God, if he's not, then we can't say, I mean, even though they, uh, a Muslim will be heartfelt and devoted This book would say they are devoted to destruction. And we say that in love, not in pride. Because there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. And the appropriation, um, what I'm going to point to right now, the appropriation of this word and the overcoming of our resistance. We can resist the Spirit. Resist the Spirit. We have that power to resist the Spirit until until God says enough and overcomes our resistance and softens our heart and makes us hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And so, Having a disposition of submission must be matched by the nature of what you're submitted to in order for it to be God-honoring. I just commend to you the Neo-Koreshian book, Mm -hmm. You Shall Know God But One, because he came from the Muslim side, loving his book, treasuring his book, believing it was the book. But when he began to study this book, and I know the Spirit, I would, sorry, Brother Rick. When I think of the scripture's uniqueness and it being unlike any other book, Pastor John, when he wrote in Peculiar Glory, he talks about this scripture being self-authenticated. Yes. Three years ago, my family, I took, I think it was about 36 different, 36 weeks to walk with my children through religions of the world. And we evaluated them all up against uh, scripture. We covered about 30 different religions. And it was, it was just striking to me 
to, as a dad walking through with my kids one day a week, to be able to see it right there, how distinct Christianity truly is. The only religion in the world that truly does by its self-authenticating power and by the work of the Spirit, overcome a human self-reliance in our quest to become right with God. It's the only religion on the planet that is not attempting, or calling people rather, to be good enough in order to weigh the scales, to allow the weight of the good to overcome the bad. In fact, it, it's, it's so brutally honest that not only is there a problem in this world, but that we're part of the problem and that we cannot be part of the solution. It's the only religion on the planet that testifies to such a thing. And in, when I look at the world, one of the reasons I continue to believe in Christianity is because it testifies to what I see to be real, even in my own self. I cannot be part of the solution. And yet that solution has entered into space and time outside of me, yet for the sake of me and for the sake of all of you in the person of Christ. That is something that makes Christianity absolutely distinct. And I think it testifies to its authenticity. Number one. We need God's, we need God-given help. Scripture's uniqueness, here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This book is spiritually given And it will demand a spiritual appraisal. And until God overcomes our hardness, the only influence on us is flesh. What we need is the spirit of the resurrected Christ to come in and remove our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, whereas we were once drawn toward selfishness, now something in our soul says, you need to serve. That's something new, something, something that would, would overcome a proneness toward lust. Now all of a sudden there's a deep-seated guilt that doesn't lead to, to mere self-deprivation, but rather raises up our eyes to see all that Christ is for us in the cross. And we find hope and we find help. A God who is already 100% for us in Christ. And out of that framework do we fight sin. Things spiritually given are spiritually discerned. That is, we ultimately cannot appropriate this book in the way that it's intended to be received without the work of the Spirit. And that's different than Shakespeare, different than Homer's Iliad. Second, we need the lens of Christ in order to fully understand the book. We see more than Moses and Abraham, sorry, Abraham and Moses saw. 
We can understand more than they could understand. The Jews of Jesus' day, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And it's with that conviction that we enter into the discipline of biblical theology wherein Christ is the climax. The New Testament supersedes the Old. We've moved from anticipation to realization, from promise to fulfillment. Whole Bible theology takes that into account. Theologies versus theology. When I go to secular conferences and sit in biblical theology lectures, there is no sense of one overarching theology of Scripture. Everything is broken down into multiple theologies that stand even in tension with one another. It's not how we approach. Is it enough to interpret biblical books historically as distinct theologies, that is the parts, or must we also consider them in light of one another as a unity? And I would say, yes, we must, because there is one divine author who is always unified in his person. Because God's the ultimate author of Scripture, biblical theology's task cannot end by shaping theologies of corpora, law, prophets, writings, poetical books, or limit itself to theologies of human authors, what Paul had to say, or what Isaiah had to say. But rather, we must push ourselves to a unified theology. We can't even say just an Old Testament theology, or a theology of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's not faithful to the nature of the book as Christian Scripture. We have to account for the coming of Christ. And we must recognize that mystery has been revealed. And without looking through the lens of Christ, we will not understand the mysteries that are there. So let me define biblical theology. I've got a huge worded, hugely worded definition and then a short one. You can take the short one home with you. Here's the big one. A way of analyzing and synthesizing what the Bible reveals about God and His relations with the world that makes organic, salvation historical, and literary canonical connections with the whole of Scripture on its own terms, especially with respect to how the Old and New Testaments progress, integrate, and climax in Christ. I'm going to unpack that definition for us. But here's the short one. What are we talking about today? how to analyze and synthesize how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Jesus. That's biblical theology. How does the whole Bible progress, integrate, and climax in the person of the Son of God? And when we're looking at our passage, what we're wanting to do is fit it within Scripture's progression, integration, and climax, and understand what is it contributing to the overarching storyline and the progress of Revelation culminating in the Christ. So the task, part one. Biblical theology analyzes and synthesizes what the Bible reveals about God and His relations with the world. This book is about God and His relations with the world, His purposes from creation to consummation and beyond. Biblical theology interprets the final form of the Christian Bible, Old and New Testaments. That is what I mean by analyzing and synthesizing what the Bible reveals. 
That's, there's a limit here to our focus of inquiry. 66 books, not the Deutero, the Deutero-canonical books that the Catholic Bible adds, not intertestamental literature that was made between Malachi and Matthew, but rather the 66 books that have been given to us by God and recognized as such in the history of the church. As testaments, old and new testament, that very word testament, it's the Latin term for covenant. And by its nature, it implies a historical grounding to the object of biblical theological inquiry. This is a covenantal document, Old Testament, New Testament, Old and New Covenant, that dominate the different spheres of this text. And therefore, the biblical theological task is going to push us into an inquiry that includes historical engagement, that is covenantal in nature, coming from a king to a needy people that he enters into relationship with. It's the nature of the biblical theological task. That God's revelation comes through Old and New Testaments highlights both Scripture's unity and diversity with foundation giving rise to fulfillment. So when we say that we're analyzing and synthesizing what the Bible reveals, automatically, because that Bible is an Old Testament and a New Testament, there is diversity and unity. One, one God orchestrating the whole thing, and yet a movement, a progress from foundation to fulfillment. The task part two. Biblical theology makes organic connections with the whole of Scripture. You're trying to build links, and yet these are not superficial links. These are the links of an acorn growing into a mighty oak. And being able to identify the connection, the organic, natural connection such that when you hear biblical theology done in the pulpit or behind the lectern or when you're wrestling with it, you should be able to go to your neighbor and show them how you built the bridge that you just declared. Because it's growing out of the text itself. Biblical theology is about natural, unforced connections within Scripture in such a way that it recognizes growth or progress in thought or concepts and lets the Bible speak in accordance with its own contours, structures, language, and flow. All the Bible grows out of God's unchanging nature, and it must be understood to align with His unified purpose of exalting Himself over all things, ultimately through Christ. This unity of the Bible is what makes biblical theology possible, that is, building these connections between the old and the new. But it's not only what makes it possible, it's what makes biblical theology absolutely necessary. We cannot read the Old Testament on its own. God never intended us to read it on its own. And that's why in 13 years of Old Testament teaching, which is what we've almost done every single week, every single week we've been pointing to Jesus. Every single week we've had 
numerous New Testament texts all over the map. Every single week, my teaching has been biblical theological teaching because it's unpacking how the whole Bible, growing out of this one text in Deuteronomy, in Samuel, in the Minor Prophets, this one text is part of the progression, integration, and climax in Jesus. Salvation historical connections. So biblical theology makes organic, natural, salvation historical connections within the whole of Scripture on its own terms. So when I'm using the language of salvation history, we're talking about a story, a movement from creation to to consummation. Creation, then the fall, then redemption, then consummation. Salvation history is the progressive narrative unfolding of God's kingdom plan through the various covenants, events, peoples, and institutions, all climaxing in the person of Jesus. And this whole book is held together by a storyline. There's many other things other than story. I'll touch on those in a second. Those are the literary canonical connections. But it's the storyline, the story of salvation history that is ultimately his story, the story of God's glory in Christ. And it's, it's that, that storyline that, that helps us understand where we fit, who Jesus is, what problem he supplies the answer for. If we don't read the Bible through in, in the light of the story, and that's part of what biblical theology is, then we're going to miss the significance of our passage and even how it's supposed to relate to us. If you're reading the Old Testament without recognizing that that's Old Covenant and we're part of the New, you very well could could miss the fact that you can delight in bacon. (laughs) My academic dean just took me to the blue cow in South St. Paul for the first time. 14 years, how was I ever missing the blue cow? This is an amazing burger joint. And I got one with lots of bacon. And it was delightful because it's victory food. And if you approach the old covenant law and it says don't eat bacon, and so you just appropriate it without doing right kind of biblical theology... You're going to miss an opportunity to bring great glory to the resurrected Son of God who conquered the serpent through whom it's, it's because of the serpent that we have unclean foods at all. That's where the unclean animals are associated with him. They're all associated with the serpent in the garden. And at the cross, Jesus conquers it. We do biblical theology and delight in our bacon burger. And we'll miss it if we don't understand salvation history. Read your Bibles, it will impact your diet. (laughs) Salvation history, as I said, moves from creation to fall, and it doesn't stop there. It's triumphed by redemption and will culminate in our hope. A hope for an inheritance that that is... First word... 
imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Thank you. I need help. Kept in heaven for us. Consummation. So, years back, in an attempt to try to package the story in a way that back then my five-year-olds could remember and my college students could remember, I said, okay, what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. So I said, is there any way I could use those seven letters to capture the story? Here's what we've got. Old Testament narrative foundation gives rise to New Testament narrative fulfillment. I would encourage you, take this home, teach it to your kids, teach it to your grandkids. You hide it in your heart so that you can remember the story and then consider, okay, put up This is what I used to do when I taught this. I just fill up a board loaded with all the peoples and events and and symbols that you can remember from all the Bible and then do your best to try to fit them into the storyline. Being able to distinguish, I mean, I I already said Moses, then Abraham, and I had to correct myself because it frustrates me when people get the storyline wrong. When you put Jonah after Daniel. No! He has to be in front of Daniel. So, number one, K, kickoff and rebellion. It's where it all begins. Creation, fall, and flood. The kickoff happens, the fall is a reality, and yet the fall is not the final word. Who remembers I? Come now, I've taught this before. Wifey, do you remember I? Instrument of blessing. So we're not talking about a trumpet here. We're talking about a channel. A channel of blessing through the patriarchs. The problem with the world is curse after kickoff and rebellion. And through Abraham, God says, I'm going to reverse that curse and bring blessing. It's ultimately going to come through a nation that will give rise to a single person, a king on the throne. N, nation redeemed and commissioned. We're talking about Israel here, who's bound up after the patriarchs in Egypt and needs an exodus. An exodus from Egypt to the promised land, and in route they camp at Sinai, where God gives them His law, and He calls them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Nation redeemed and commissioned. Not a nation that will have priests, but a nation that will be priests. In the midst of a world that's still under curse. A world that needs to encounter God. And how will they encounter God? They will come to God through Israel, and they will be the mediators of His holiness to the rest of the world. That's how it's supposed to be. G, government in the land. We're talking here about the conquest and the kingdoms. Conquest and kingdoms. Joshua takes them in. During the period of the judges, everything goes awry. They finally ask for a king. Saul, David, Solomon, the kingdom divides. Israel goes down. Judah goes down. Conquest and kingdoms. D, anybody? What happens after the kingdoms? 
Destruction, that would have been a good D. Dividing. Dispersion. It's the exile. Dispersion and return. Exile and initial restoration. They go and they come back under Cyrus. But it's only part of the restoration. They're only back in the land because the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. They've got to have a people back in the land so that he can rise out of the city of David. And so he does. After 400 more years, we have the overlap of the ages. That is Christ's work in the church age. This is where the future enters into the middle of history. All the while with the old age in Adam, the old creation in Adam, the old covenant in Moses still continuing, but now Christ bringing the future new covenant, the future new creation, the future new age, and inaugurating what we know of as the church. Christ's work and the church age gives rise to M. Anybody? Pardon? Messiah? He's already come once. He will come again. And what will be done? Scott? Not mission impossible. Mission accomplished. Christ's return and kingdom consummation. Christ's return and kingdom consummation. Mission accomplished. Now I've put all of this into pictures. So you can follow the train of thought from the time in the garden to the rebellion to the exile to the flood waters of judgment then God bringing a father and a son who were pointers to something greater making a great pledge promises of offspring promises of a homeland promises that his blessing would reach to the four corners of the globe then In nation accomplished, the offspring promise begins to be fulfilled. Israel grows into a nation in Egypt. They cross through the waters of judgment. God brings them to Sinai and gives them His law. But they rebel again. They enter into the land in triumph. It's as if they're back in paradise. They're finally home, but they continue to rebel. They're exiled Then they return back to the land for a temporary home, but they continue to rebel. But in the fullness of time, Christ comes, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now, not physically, but spiritually, God begins a conquest over the hostile hearts of people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. And the Gospel of Acts shows the movement of God's kingdom purposes in Christ from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission begins to be fulfilled. The blessing of God reaching the nations, the offspring of God, finding increased consummation all the way until the kingdom is fully established. The fires of judgment overcome all the enemies of God. The blessing of God has reached the nations. The offspring are complete. We are in paradise forever at home with our Creator. I'm going to hop ahead here 
and consider literary canonical connections. We've covered salvation history briefly. What do I mean by biblical theology makes literary canonical connections? This is more than a story. There's more in here than just the narrative that we find in Genesis through Deuteronomy, Joshua through Kings, Daniel through Ezra Nehemiah. There's more than the story. There's also commentary. The Bible has a composition and a structure. And it appears that Jesus' Bible had a different structure than our English Bibles, even though it had the same books. Because of what Jesus says, for example, one spot that we see it is in Luke 24, where he mentions the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. A three-part Old Testament. Old Testament, New Testament, you're also going to see here a little bit of a different order than we have in our English Bibles, but the earliest New Testament bound books have James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude in front of Paul's letters and Hebrews. So it groups Paul's epistles and Hebrews at the end, but all I want you to notice here is that there is a pattern that the New Testament seems to align with the same pattern of Jesus' Bible generically. The law is narrative. Oh yes, it has genealogies and it has many laws, but it's framed by story that moves from creation all the way to Moses' burial. Then Joshua picks up in the former prophets and it takes us all the way to the book of Kings when Israel, so Israel enters the land and then they're kicked out of the land. And the story pauses. It will pick up again in the book of Daniel. Sorry, right here, with Daniel in the latter writings. They ended in Babylon. The story picks up in Babylon. And Daniel's there. And so then we read about God's exalted reign that Daniel foreshadows. Then we read about the preservation of the people in the book of Esther. We read about the, the return to the land in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then at the culmination of the Old Testament is the book of Chronicles, which retells the whole story. The first word of Chronicles is Adam. It retells the whole story from creation all the way up to the return after exile and builds hope for the coming king that's been promised since the book of Genesis. In the middle here, though, right after we get to the book of Kings, there's a pause. I call them commentary books. They're not contributing to the storyline itself in unpacking the narrative. Instead, they're giving us clarity on how to read that narrative. The prophets that were preaching in the midst of the story. The poetry that was being written by the the remnant of faithful in the midst of that story. How were they continuing? How were they keeping their faith in God? The former and latter prophet, sorry, the latter prophets and the former writings unpack that. Now, when we come to the New Testament, in the same way that the Old Covenant is established in the law, the New Covenant is established in the Gospels. And they come to us in the form of a story. They're narratives. Then the history of the covenant 
history of the new covenant is then unpacked. But whereas it was a negative history in Joshua through Kings, it's a history of success, of expansion by the power of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Then the story pauses and we have these two units, regardless of which way they go, with the general epistles and Paul's letters and, and the, book, the letter to the Hebrews, where this isn't narrative. It's not telling the story anymore. It's pausing and reflecting on what does it mean to live in the midst of the new covenant? And then, though, we come to the end and we return. It's not narrative in a classic sense because it's not telling what happened in the past. Instead, it's anticipatory narrative telling us through symbolic images what's going to happen in the future, what is happening now. The preservation of the people of God and their hope in the coming king who will ride in on a white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth, overcoming all enemies, establishing a marriage supper, and bringing in the consummation of new creation. And biblical theology entails knowing where the book we're studying, the passage that we're looking at, fits not only in the storyline, the story, notice how the story frames both the Old and the New Testament. The narrative portion frames the whole part of the book, inviting us into all the Bible through the lens of the story. But what we have to remember is that there's more than just story. There's other portions, and we just need to understand how does it all fit together. So, along with the Bible's composition and structure are the historical details. So, we see that Luke wrote both Acts and his Gospel, and it invites us to consider the parallels between the two books. Time is ticking, isn't it? Relationship of the Testaments, oh my. Biblical theology wrestles with how the Old and New Testaments progress and integrate. I have reflections, you can read them. Let me, let me jump ahead here. The Bible's frame, form, focus, and fulcrum. Biblical theology is about progression, integration, and climax. And this is how I hold it all together. Just trying to Use words that are memorable, although Dr. Nacelli, he doesn't like the term fulcrum because he says, that's not exactly what you mean. But you can tell me. It is an F. Frame. The question at hand is what? What is the Bible about? The Bible is about the kingdom of God. That is that God reigns, saves, and satisfies. How does it come to us? In what form is it given? It's through covenant, an old, a new. It's expressed to us in a book. It's through covenant. Well, why did he do it? Everything God does is for the same ultimate answer. That we would be able to see him and savor him as God. It's for his glory. And... Is there a unifying element that ties everything together? Around which everything circles? To which everything points? And the answer is yes. In Christ. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for God's glory in Christ. And Dr. Nacelli and I 
put our heads together. That is our best attempt right now at synthesizing what the whole message of Scripture is about. That everything in Scripture could be related to that single statement in some way. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ. Here's the final image. God's kingdom through covenant, old and new. It's like a giant wheel. Everything is held together by God's reigning, saving, and satisfying His people. God's kingdom. The old has three parts. The new has three parts. Old covenant established, enforced, enjoyed. New covenant established, enforced, enjoyed. Everything points to Jesus. Everything is held together coming from Jesus. He's at the center as Savior, Satisfier, and Sovereign. Biblical theology must be part of our interpretive process. Just asking, how does what I'm reading right now fit into the progression, integration, and climax in the person of Jesus? It will help your soul increasingly become satisfied. It will remind you of how much God is for you, 100%. It will fuel your pursuit of killing sin because the only sin we can conquer is forgiven sin. We need a God who's 100% for us. And fitting our passage within the framework of the whole of Scripture helps fuel our hope, fuel our life, fuel our joy. Father, I thank You that You have met us today. Be honored through our lives. Overcome sin. Help us treasure Jesus more. Help us live faithfully, boldly, with integrity. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.